the show starts in five, four, three, two, one, go. Well, you know, the, the, the catchphrase, what that was all about, uh, the revolution will not be televised, that was about the fact that the first change that takes place is in your mind. You have to change your mind before you change the way you live and the way you move. So when we said that the revolution will not be televised, we were saying that like that, that, that the thing that's going to change people is something that no one will ever be able to capture on film. It'll just be something that you see and all of a sudden you realize, I'm on the wrong page. Or I'm on the right page, but I'm on the wrong note. And I've got to get in sync with everyone else to understand what's happening in this country. Mm-hmm. But I think that the black Americans have been the, the, the only real diehard Americans here because we, we're the only ones who, who carried the process through the process. That everyone else has sort of like skipped stages. We're the ones who marched, we're the ones who carried the Bible, we're the ones who carried the flag, we're the ones who tried to go through the courts. And, 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 and being born American didn't, didn't seem to matter because we were born Americans, but we still had to fight for what we were looking for. So we still had to go through those channels and those processes. Abolition. Abolition. Good afternoon, uh, Chairman Orenshaw, members of the committee, um, Senator Cannizzaro, Leader Cannizzaro in her absence, Senator Lang, Senator Cephas Ganser, Senator Buck, great to see you all. Um, frankly, I miss uh, sitting up there sometimes, and I uh, sometimes envy, but sometimes don't envy what it is you're, you're dealing with these days. Uh, great to see Mr. Stewart, who was my very first cam- uh, committee manager, Natural Resources Committee, uh, Brian Fern, who I worked with quite a bit on judiciary, and your fabulous staff. Uh, great to see everyone. My name is Aaron Ford, and I am your Attorney General. Uh, I appear before you today to testify in favor of Assembly Joint Resolution 10, AJR 10, which seeks to remove language from the Nevada Constitution that authorizes the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as a criminal punishment. I apologize at the outset for uh, repeating in my testimony some things you've already heard um, our uh, bill sponsors say, but frankly, I think it bears some repeating. Uh, And thanks again for allowing me to share my thoughts in support of this bill. Article 1, Section 17 of the Nevada Constitution currently states, and I quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude unless for the punishment of crimes shall ever be tolerated in this state. The clause in this section I just quoted, unless for the punishment of crimes, provides an exception, allowing for legalized slavery and involuntary servitude, and it employs the criminal justice system to do it. As I'll reference more in a second, a similar clause appears in the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And just as that clause undermines our United States Constitution, So does this clause undermine our very foundation upon which the great state of Nevada was built. Indeed, as its commentary states, as a commentary states in 2016 film, The 13th, an in-depth, which provides itself as an in-depth look at the prison system in the United States and how it reveals the nation's history of racial inequality, the 13th Amendment exception has permeated our society. But back to our state's founding, the Nevada Constitution was created with urgency in 1864, hence the Battleborn State, as part of the uh, president's efforts to prevail in the Civil War, fought over slavery. The governor at that time, James Warren Nye, uh, deemed that neither train nor postal service was fast enough to deliver the handwritten Nevada Constitution to President Lincoln before the upcoming presidential elections. According to the Nevada State Library and Archives, Governor Nye authorized for the Nevada Constitution to be telegraphed across the continent to Washington, D.C. At, a time, it was the most, at that time, it was the most expensive telegraph ever. 
costing $4,313.27, or in today's dollar, $59,229. After receiving the telegram, Lincoln proclaimed that Nevada was admitted to the Union. And as history reveals, the Union won the Civil War the very next year. While those in Nevada were actively trying to earn statehood, other areas of the country were struggling to end the practice of slavery and involuntary servitude practices that were deeply ingrained in the social and economic fabric of states throughout the Union and what is now known as the former Confederate territories. But as has been shown, Nevada's pension to do, it led the way, albeit with room for improvement. And to be sure, it was a precondition for admission to the Union that Nevada be a non-slave state. And parenthetically, I'll say that other preconditions were, first, freedom of religious worship, and secondly, a disclaimer of public land. But still, Nevada was one of those leading the way on the issue of slavery and involuntary servitude. Point in fact, the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery throughout the country, with, that, with the certain exception, was ratified after the Nevada Constitution on December the 6th, 1865. The 13th Amendment utilized similar language that is in our Nevada Constitution. However, providing that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, comma, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. As stated previously, yes, it contains a similar exception to the one AGR 10 seeks to remove from our own Constitution. This language was often used for the purpose of circumventing the abolition of slavery. What is known as the, quote, black codes were enacted throughout America to punish and incarcerate the formerly enslaved for petty purposes such as having to, uh, to prove employment every year or for violating early curfews. Once convicted, the government could then lease out inmates, extracting forced labor without pay. That is, states could convict lease. They could use that as a method of loaning or renting prisoners to companies for their private use. Notably, black prisoners were often rented or loaned out to former slave owners for labor. The prisoners would come back with having, uh, having severely been abused or oftentimes having deformities or other limitations. And some died. In my mind, that was really a way for racists to act out vengeance for no longer having the right to own people and enslave them. Moreover, it was the beginning of what commentators note as our culture's rebranding of black men from slave to criminal. For more on that, I commend to your reading a book by the author Douglas A. Blackman entitled Slavery by Another Name the re-enslavement of black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. AGR 10 is designed to protect all groups from slavery and involuntary servitude. While black Americans are disproportionately represented in Nevada prisons, incidentally, black people make up approximately 10.3% of Nevada's overall population and a little more than 31% of Nevada's prison population. There are, however, in sure numbers, more white people in Nevada's prisons than any other ethnic racial group with 42% of Nevada's prison population being white or Caucasian. Ultimately, I believe individuals of every race, color, creed will benefit from AGR 10. AGR 10 serves to rid us of the last vestiges of slavery. This clause in question is not only antiquated, but it is entirely unnecessary to achieve the criminal justice purposes of, among other things, punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation, and restoration. As I close, I want to share a personal story, some personal history, if you will. Introduce you to a gentleman named William Barry. 
similar to Mr. Watts, I uh, coming from a lineage of the formerly enslaved. William Barry was my fourth great-grandfather, born in Fordyce, Arkansas, in, 18, in the early 1800s, born as an enslaved individual. Uh, he was married with children, put on an auction block to be sold in Fordyce, Arkansas, and said he would not be sold, stood up for his humanity, said that his wife and children deserved to have a father, a, a husband and a father, and he protected his humanity. So they didn't sell him. They killed him right there on the auction block. And oral history of my family says that three of his sons were sold to a Texas slaver, uh, one of which was my third great-grandfather, uh, and I am the progeny of William Berry. His DNA runs through my veins to this day. And today, as Nevada's Attorney General, I continue his legacy and I fight for everyone's humanity. And today you can join me and members of the Nevada Black Caucus and thankfully every member of the Nevada Assembly in this fight for humanity by supporting AGR 10. I urge you to do so. It's the right thing to do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Attorney General Ford, and thank you for everything you're doing for our state, uh, fighting, fighting for us on so many fronts. Abolition. 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 Wow. You just heard Gil Scott Heron. The revolution begins in your mind, and that was followed by powerful testimony from Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford on AJR 10. And I'm, I'm left speechless just beginning with that. But anyways, peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at Abolition Today. Dot org, and we're also available on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, uh, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, sitting next to Sister Sharon Starr-Smith. Hey, hey. Peace, Sharon. Peace, Sharon. I also understand we have another guest on the line as well, right? Yes, sir. Uh, we're going to be joined today by uh, Mark Hughes, Reverend Mark Hughes, who is the lead organizer uh, for the Vermont efforts to remove the exception clause from the grandfather of all exception clauses. Um, you know, I was a little taken aback because I learned something from Aaron Ford. Uh, I didn't know that there was a fifth state that had that exception clause just before the 13th Amendment came into play. So That's the same thing I picked states. up on, too. Right. So Nevada just made it just a year before, 80, 1864. So that's five states that incorporated that devious exception clause before we even saw a 13th Amendment. Yeah, for real. So last week, you and I examined the historical journey of the 13th Amendment through, the court, through uh, some court cases, and our research provided some shocking conclusions things we weren't supposed to know and weren't supposed to be looking for at all. But we looked and we exposed that forbidden knowledge. In this episode, 
We'll highlight legislative testimony in Nevada and Vermont. It is our goal to do so more often for every state fighting in the halls of legislation to remove pro-slavery constitutional language. The speakers channel the raw, honest passion and determination of our abolitionist ancestors with words that will ring out across the annals of time. They are life-changing, inspirational, uplifting, hopeful, and powerful. These amazing testimonies today hold as true to current events as they did for Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and Mother Tubman in their time. They deserve to be heard, and you deserve to hear them. And, of course, we also have some powerful music mixes and the voices of the ancestors reclaimed without bridging the gap segment. So before we start, Max, tell us what you think of the opening track and also uh, give a rundown of how your week has been. Well, man, I can't even do those rundowns on the week. Like I said, I'll be so busy, man, it's hard to even keep track anymore. Um, but I, I do know that that was one powerful testimony. Not only was sure. uh, you know, just on the face value, that was one mm-hmm. of those things that should go down in the annals of history. But it was from a sitting attorney general, a black attorney general, who was the top, who mm-hmm. was then at the time of speaking, the top cop in the state of Nevada, calling this legalized slavery allowed mm-hmm. through our criminal justice system, and then telling how his fourth great grandfather was an enslaved African himself. Uh, and how mm-hmm. he is, you know, the descendants of this and why it means so much to him to see it ended right now. Uh, that was a, yeah, hell of a powerful testimony for sure, man. It really so, was. I've been listening to a lot of these testimonies. I've participated in many of them, as you know, across the country. And this is mm-hmm. gold that is going uh, under the radar. Like, y'all need to hear these these words that are being spoken. And it's not like... Somebody's hunting them down in committee hearings going, you know, I want to listen to a committee hearing today. So you're not really getting a chance to hear them. And uh, these are just so powerful, so important. So today we're going to focus on Vermont's testimonies to share with uh, people so we can begin that process here in Abolition Today of bringing these testimonies to you so that you can hear them. Uh, We started with Nevada. I think that was a powerful way to begin the program, especially with Brother uh, Gil Scott Haran breaking it down for us. The revolution starts in your mind, just like it started in Aaron uh, Ford's mind. You know, it began in his right. mind when he changed his mind, and that's why he was there testifying. Uh, and so we're going to play some of, the, some of those every week from here on in, uh, not only bridging the gap, but also showing their contemporary burdens. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that change your mind always reminds me of something that I heard you say when we were in Washington, D.C. What do we want to hear? Slavery! What are we fighting? Slavery! Slavery! Got to get it right. Right, right after that, right before that, you told the people, change your mind. Stop calling it mass incarceration. Stop calling it, I forgot how you broke it down, but then you ended it with that right there. You got to start calling it what it is. And we just heard Attorney General... uh, Aaron Ford called it exactly what it was. He didn't refer to it as anything else. He called it slavery. You know, so and that's that's part of changing the mind. Got to call things by their proper names. 
Yeah, words have power. Uh, as a spoken word artist and a poet, I know that very well. Uh, words can, anything is possible with the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and God was with the word. <laughs> you know? Nikki Giovanni, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, uh, even when we have elections and they're spending billions and billions of dollars on candidates, it's because they're using the power of the word to get control of your hearts and minds. <laughs> it's as that's exactly. They exactly. who you believe in, like Tupac said. They want to be who you believe in. Mm. So, um, let's go ahead and bring Brother Mark in right off. I want to get his commentary on what he heard as well. I believe that's his first time hearing I, that. Welcome back to Abolition Today, Mark Reverend Mark Hughes. Amen. Uh, glad you could be here with us on this day. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to be here too. Thank you so much for having us back on. I'm joined here with the queen of my life, uh, my wife Christine. She's here uh, with me. Uh, we're I am the executive director of the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance here in Vermont. Uh, we are um, definitely paying close attention to what is uh, PR2, the uh, as we refer to it as the, the granddaddy of all the exception clauses. Our interest here, obviously, you know, as we've developed a relationship uh, with the Abolished Slavery National Network, is it really goes to, as you know, uh, the fact that there were no states that constitutionalized slavery uh, before Vermont, and we don't have just one, not even two, but we have three exception clauses uh, in our Constitution. Yeah, we're we're looking at uh, here in the state of Vermont. You know what a lot of folks would refer to as badges and badges and incidents, uh, and what you know a lot of folks like to refer to as systemic racism because there's a lot of things that have played out as a result of it, but also uh, raising knowledge. You know the fact that hey, before Ohio, um, before Oregon, before uh, the Northeast Territory, before Nevada. Uh, before Alabama, before we had an exception clause uh, in the, the United States Constitution, Vermont led the way. So we're happy to, to be here. Uh, we're ha- happy to have the support of the of the Abolish Slavery National Network behind us and getting this work done. Uh, so we're looking um, we're looking to not only address the badges and incidents, but also to stand in line and support of abolishing slavery at a national level, to constitutionalize slavery that's permitted under the 13th Amendment, the constitutionalized slavery uh, that is being propagated across the country. Uh, by this PR2, what we'll do as a state is, is we'll be pushing back on that, and hopefully there'll be 37 other states uh, that'll join us in doing so. So thank you for having us. Amen to that. Hello, Christine. How you doing, sister? Hi. Good. Always happy to be around you all. Among those who testified, glad to have you. Among those who testified in Vermont, Vermont, Christine was one of them. As a person, she said, from the seventies, growing up in Vermont, raising children in Vermont, she was speaking as a Vermontian, if that's what you guys call yourselves. Uh, And it was some powerful testimony. So many called in from all across the country. We knew because it was a public testimony in Vermont that we were all going to call in. It was something we had pre-planned. They didn't know, and it just kind of blew them away. (laughs) But they really learned a lot of things from our collective testimony that they had no clue at all about. Uh, At the beginning of the conversation, it seemed to me that 
what they thought they were doing was a symbolic gesture that really had no meaning. And even one of mm-hmm. those historians who testified said as much. Uh, that would be uh, Professor Teachout, uh, you know, and coming and saying, well, this don't mean a whole lot, but. Uh, and by the time they were done, they realized this is a national issue with international implications that we began and we, we're even dealing with these issues on a level here that we need to address but can't right now, like human trafficking issues and racial disparities issues and all the badges and incidents of slavery you would find anywhere else. Uh, Brother Mark? Yes, sir. Uh, I was uh, happy that you guys were able to come in and, and provide some testimony. I'm looking forward to hearing some of that uh, tonight. I'm excited that we're getting the opportunity to review it today and just for those who are listening, uh, we we do have a, a full house uh, vote coming up here. Um, it was originally scheduled. I believe it was supposed to take place this week on Tuesday, and there was a clerical error that occurred that that pushed it back to Friday, and this will be the second house vote, which will clear it uh, to move over into our state secretary's office for preparation for ballot. So. Yeah, there's a there's some mm-hmm. stuff happening here, and and uh, I'm glad that we're on the radar, and I'm glad that uh, you at the national level, you guys are bringing some awakening here to Vermont. We've got some work to do. Uh, we're just taking it one step at a time. We, what we want to do first is just get the work done on the Constitution, and then what we'll begin to do is uh, we'll continue the work that we started in unpacking uh, this thing we call systemic racism and addressing it as it plays itself out across all of these social determinants. Uh, here in the state of Vermont. And we call ourselves Vermonters, by the way. <laughs> Vermonters, all right. Uh, Vermonters. Um, I've been informed today that we have a couple of groups that are having listening parties to this. Uh, one is doing a clubhouse event where they have a Q&A amongst themselves afterwards uh, with some abolitionists that we know. So there's quite a few people be tuning in tonight. I want to get into the first track, but before I do, I just have one question I did want to ask you about. And that is the testimony you heard from the beginning from Aaron Ford, the Attorney General out there. What was your thoughts on that in Nevada? That's to me, Max. Yes. Yeah, powerful. Uh, I think you, that was a sneak attack. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess y'all do that on a weekly basis on the on the program. Is you just sneak up on folks. <laughs> But, but uh, yeah, that one right there, uh, I didn't see that one coming. I'm, I'm doing some, I'm actually multitasking, doing some research, trying to, you know, figure out who this brother is and, and get some more about that story. But, you know, for those who are listening, you know, that's another thing I would also encourage. And Max, I know you do a lot of it, you step as well, just, you know, just dig it. That's one of the things that we got to do that we're charged with doing is we got to dig into this thing because nobody's going to be dropping this information on our doorstep. So we're grateful uh, you know, with, uh, you know, for the work that y'all are doing, uh, you know, over here, uh, and I'm excited about, you know, this bear witness to the truth. Uh, that's, uh, that's what's up. Bear witness to the truth. Uh, and and I'm, I'm hoping that what we'll do is we'll be able to you know, learn some more stuff today. And, and folks who are doing these, these, um, these groups that you're talking about, do, I, I challenge y'all, do some digging. I, I promise you, you'll find something new every time you dig. Amen to that. Uh, speaking of digging, I did a lot of digging and brought something to the table in the very beginning of the testimony. As I said, I knew in advance what was going to happen. They didn't. So I kind of set the table for what was to come. You'll hear it 
in the testimony. This is me starting it all off in Vermont for PR2 on January 20th, 2022. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Thank you, Reverend Hughes. Um, Next up uh, will be Max Parthas, and on deck is Kamau Allen. So welcome, Max. Thank you for being with us. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Greetings, Madam Chair, uh, Co-Chair, and esteemed members of this committee. Uh, I'm here in support of PR2 on behalf of the Abolish Slavery National Network. I'm the co-director for Operations of States. Uh, I was asked to say a few things, as you heard earlier, and so I'll begin. What we are experiencing right now in the form of enslavement as a punishment for an alleged crime and the largest prison population to have ever existed on Earth can be called the Vermont Butterfly Effect. In chaos theory, the butterfly effect is the sensitive dependence of a system on initial conditions in which a small change in one state can result in exponential differences in a later state. And here we are in that later state, post-1777 convict leasing schemes, with 25 states, one territory, one district, and a federal constitutional amendment, all based on loopholes for slavery and involuntary servitude introduced by the state of Vermont. In a decade, we saw the sea take root nationally. In 1787, it was found in the Northwest Ordinance, along with fugitive slave law support. In 1806, Ohio State Constitution adopted it. In 1843, Oregon got a hold of it. In 1861, it came out in the Corwin Amendment, which would have made slavery constitutionally untouchable. And in 1861, Alabama put it in their state constitution. And I want to make mention of Alabama in particular. Uh, It's a statement about intent. In 1883, about 10% of Alabama's total revenue was derived from convict leasing and 80% from slavery-related industries. In 1898, nearly 73% of total revenue came from this same source. So they just switched from the individual owning people to the state managing it and took very little in economic loss because of that. And not just Alabama faces economic reversal. In 1860, 80% of the nation's gross national product was tied to slavery. We saw it again in 1862 in an act of the release of certain persons held service or labor in the District of Columbia, which was supported by Abraham Lincoln. And then lastly, we saw it in the 1865 Amendment to our U.S. Constitution, which says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Just by having this exception clause in your state and federal constitutions is a violation of multiple international human rights treaties, including Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the 1948 UN General Assembly that says no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. That these are among fundamental human rights to be universally protected as the foundations of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. While denouncing China for prison labor, we're creating media content appealing to international corporations to use prison labor. Vermont is also involved in illegal human trafficking in which offenders from your state are shipped to Mississippi, where they committed no crimes. 
We're here to change that now. As of today, there are 13 states with legislation to remove those pro-slavery exceptions. Several are already on the ballot for 2022, just as you will be, giving the citizens the right to choose for or against the state owning people as property. That's Oregon, Tennessee, Alabama, California, Ohio, Florida, Nevada, New Jersey, Texas, Minnesota, Louisiana, and New York, including Vermont. Fifteen additional states are organizing to submit their legislation. And finally, a federal joint resolution is on the table introducing a potential 28th Amendment, which, like the 21st did for the 18th after prohibition, repeal the offensive and destructive exception. 34 U.S. states and territories are involved in this national effort today. I'm not going to say a whole lot more other than that. Not only is the nation watching and, and, and very concerned with what's happening here right now in Vermont, but it also has international implications when we're talking about for-profit private prisons that have become global monstrosities. I would like to end with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And he said that I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by here in South Carolina and not be concerned about what happens in Vermont. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outside agitator anywhere within its bounds. Thank you for your time. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Max's testimony in front of uh, the Vermont General Assembly on PR2. That was on January 20th, 2022. And all I can say, Max, is I bear witness to the truth. Man. Amen. <laughs> Did you hear that, right? Words. <laughs> um, again, you know, that's all I could do is tell things as I know them to be true. Uh, not what I think or what I feel, and to give them the facts. You know, I talked with Mark earlier, and he was like, Max, I need you to, to focus on certain parts. So I did for, because, you know, it's his campaign. He does how you want to do it. Uh, but I know uh, that it is important that they understand the history of what it is they've done here and the the complexity of it all, how this seed you planted has borne fruits and how much blood has flown, uh, uh, has has been bled behind that decision. How much freedom has been lost because you introduced this thing from then till now? And here we are right now, still fighting the same damn thing in the form of a same damn exception clause in 2022. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll pass the mic with that, <laughs> brother Mark. Anything you want to say? I'll take that, Mike. You know, one of the things that uh, is is important to understand in, in this work that we're doing, if you were go, to go and just take a look at the original proposal, and it was amended before it came out, but we referenced the fact that uh, Vermont only had a partial prohibition uh, in uh, for slavery, uh, and then we went into a discussion, in, and this is all in our history. When we first introduced this, we said 
Um, we said that the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution ratified in 1865 prohibited slavery within the United States except as a punishment for uh, crime where uh, the party shall have been duly convicted. And, and we went on to say, and here's the thing is, is despite subsequent revisions to it, the Vermont Constitution continues to contain only a partial prohibition on slavery. I think we have to take a look at this thing contextually because it's been 157 years since uh, it, since the uh, the 13th Amendment, and you know instead of states coming out saying no, no, not on our watch, what we've had is we've had states virtually essentially just ignore the fact that that language was there, in essence making them complicit or compliant, if you will, in terms of this mm-hmm. constitutional constitutionalized state-sanctioned slavery. So, you know, you know, you would think that Vermont, since we were the one who, you know, essentially started this, and we also have have a proud tradition of an, an exceptional reputation in terms of what we say we are uh, in, uh, in in terms of leadership in this area, you would have thought that, particularly since we have amended our Constitution 27 times, and even in the first article, we've done some amendments uh, as recent as 94. You would have thought that they would have gone back and said, yeah, we need to fix that, but that has not occurred. So I think this is a good thing. What's going on now in Vermont is, is folks have recognized that there's some work to do, and uh, and that's, that's going to happen, and, and we'll see that happen. Hopefully our representatives are listening. We put the word out to them on social media tonight that this is airing on all of our social media platforms. Hopefully there's something that they can listen to and learn, and it will motivate them to go in and to, again, unanimously vote uh, yes on PR2 in Vermont. Amen, brother. You know, your Constitution allows for peonage, which is also supposedly abolished, uh, because it specifically says for the nonpayment of bills and the like, uh, which is peonage, which is supposed to be illegal. And to think that nobody yeah. would exploit a loophole is ridiculous. I mean, we're in America, the home of these record labels. We're exploiting loopholes is a science, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so to think that they wouldn't do it is just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I know that Vermont likes to think of themselves as, you know, first at this, first at that, a little period, this period, that. But in the, in the face of, what was his name, LeClaire, uh, Representative LeClaire, voting no to keep slavery in the state of Vermont, he wanted to keep it in there. I have to quote uh, Brother James Baldwin, who said, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And that's not the limit of it with Vermont. Vermont has one of the highest racial disparities in arrests per 100,000 than anyone else in the country. It's like 14 to 1. And you don't have but like 1% of the population, so it's like your communities are literally surrounded and being incarcerated. But, you know, let's, let's, let's go ahead and get into our, our second uh, testimony that evening. As I said, I've been focusing, I focused this particular program on the leadership of the Abolish Slavery National Network. It's not going to be that all the time. I just wanted to start with them so you can hear what the brothers and sisters amongst us are saying and doing at these places. So we're going to go right into Kamal Allen, who is the lead organizer for the Abolished Slavery National Network. And this was his testimony in Vermont for PR2 on 120-22. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Thank you for being with us, Max. 
Next, I'd like to welcome Kamau Allen, and on deck will be Damita Bishop. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also really glad that you pronounced my name correctly. Uh, it is Kamau Allen. Um, I am the lead organizer and co-founder of the Abolish Slavery National Network. And it is an absolute honor to be here today to express my unequivocal support for PR2. Um, today, I'm not only asking that you pass this out of committee, but I am actually inviting you all, each of you, to join a story of justice that is being written by organizers, legislators, and clergy persons, and incarcerated people, and formerly incarcerated people, and community folks like myself all across this nation from coast to coast. Though I don't live in Vermont, I've been here before. In 2018, I helped to lead the campaign in Colorado to help Colorado become the, uh, the first state to abolish slavery and voluntary servitude from a, from a state constitution. At the time, I was about 23 years old, and I woke up every day not feeling, feeling like I had no idea what I was doing. But there were uh, men and women from my community organization, from my church, from uh, my neighbors who supported me and helped us to create history in our nation. Amendment A passed as a bipartisan effort. It was an effort that both Republicans and Democrats understood to be uh, a moral issue, as well as an issue of absolute urgency. That nowhere in our constitution which we recognize as not only our state's founding document, but as one of the most powerful living documents that a state could have. Nowhere within such a document should slavery have any form of loophole. Shortly after passing Amendment A in Colorado, uh, dozens of organizers reached out to us from across the state, including Utah, Nebraska, California, New Jersey, South Carolina, and others. Together with Max Parthas, who you just heard from, we formed what is called the Abolish Slavery National Network. And shortly thereafter, the organizers that we were supporting and connected to passed similar legislation, not only onto the ballots in Utah and Nebraska, but were successful in abolishing slavery from their constitution. And today we push forward. We've also, uh, in, in uh, relationship with U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley and Congresswoman Nakima Williams, the Abolish Slavery National Network partnered with 70 national organizations to, um, to address the slavery loophole that exists in the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And that effort was initiated um, on Juneteenth of 2021. We're doing this because our Constitution is not only a sacred docu document, but a living one. One that should attest to and affirm the rights and liberty and the pursuit of happiness of every single member that it's designed to protect. We're doing this because we understand that slavery is wrong, that a loophole that exists for slavery today is wrong. I do this personally because as a black man, my ancestors survived the horrors, the horrors of cattle slavery in the South. I do this as a black man because I've lost too many family members to conditions of incarceration that could be, uh, that I, I call, many others call slavery. 
today we are asking you to join us in making history. It is an honor to, uh, to support Dr. Mark Hughes. Uh, it is an honor to support PR2. It is an honor to be here today. Please vote yes on PR2. Thank you. Abolition. You just heard the testimony of Kamau Allen of the Abolished Slavery National Network testifying in Vermont on PR2 on, again, January 20th, 2022. And Brother Kamau brought the facts again. I say, I bear witness to the truth, Max. Amen. Uh, Brother Mark? Kamau surprised me when he showed up. I, we were we definitely wanted to have him come down, but that that testimony was was powerful. Uh, what he surprised me with though it has nothing to do with what what we're talking about though. He did he say he was 23 in 2018? Yes. Yeah, I think I got shoes older than that. But I was he's doing a good job, and we need brothers like him. He brought it. He brought it. And he definitely brought it in. And I, I appreciated, you know, his, his, uh, how he connected this thing and how he connected it to uh, what uh, Senator Merkley uh, is doing at the, at the national level. That was something that we definitely wanted on record here is to bring it to folks' attention that this is a national effort. This is, this is serious business. We're talking about uh, the Constitution of the United States. And, you know, I think a, a lot of folks just, Kind of overlook the fact that you know if if it's federal, uh, then um, then if unless we say something different on, on a statewide level, you know we've been saying it for decades now, right? States' rights. Uh, unless we say it, say something different on a statewide level, then that's what we're signing up for. So pushing right. back on that thing, pushing back on that thing, and saying no, you know, not not on our watch, not in our state. Uh, we understand that that's what y'all are trying to get us to sign up for, but no, we're not having it. Uh, not in the state of Vermont. So, so I'm proud of what our legislators have done here uh, up to up to date. You know, despite the fact that you know we've come you know from a, a grandfather position in, in establishing this uh, precedent of of exception clauses. You know, we've we've got some folks with some intestinal fortitude and some political will here in the state in two separate biennium, you know, to stand up and say, no, we're not having it. So I think they understand most of the implication and we'll, we'll figure out, you know, what, what the rest of it means. But, you know, if, if it's a precondition that we got to have, that we need to understand every single detail before we can say that, you know, under no circumstances should we ever permit slavery, then I think there's some serious issues that we're dealing with. I think we have to start with that as a statement. There should be no slavery. And then we'll have the conversation no, after that here. No slavery, no exception. Um, as I had earlier pointed out in the Declaration of Human Rights, it specifically bans slavery in all its forms. There's no except for prisoners duly convicted in there. And that's how it should be here in the United States in our living documents. I really love how uh, Brother Kamal uh, put a sense of urgency on it, while at the same time uh, a deserted sense of urgency while at the same time appealing that we should all join hands right now for this is a story of justice, and it is a story of justice. And it's just the mm-hmm. beginning, but you can't go any further unless you do this. You have to get this done before you move any further forward. 
And this story of justice is going to unfold for decades to come, um, you know, in many different ways. What took centuries is not going to vanish overnight. Trust that. <laughs> and the people who made these things happen are not going to get up, pack up, walk away from these billions and trillions of dollars simply because you don't like what they're doing. Uh, as I told Yusef a couple of days ago in a conversation, in the slaughterhouse, it always seems crazy to the sheep. <laughs> you know? Right. But to, right. Right to the slaughterers, it ain't crazy. <laughs> they know exactly what's going on. Um, all right. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we will have some time to take a few calls tonight. Uh, the number is 515-605-9814. If you already called in or once you do call in, please press the number one on your keypad so that we know you have a question or comment and you'll be in queue. Uh, that, once again, 515-605-9814. Uh, Christine, did you want to have any comments on what you heard? No, I'm all right. Thank you all for your work. Thank you very Thank much you. for yours. You killed it. <clears throat> I wish I could play <laughs> all the testimonies. Mic drop on that one. Be sure to listen to the committee hearing. You can go to our Facebook page, Abolition Today on Facebook, and the full committee hearing will be there. Uh, everybody's got a chance to speak, even uh, some of our allies who have never spoke before in this uh, way, before this type of uh, listening audience. They were so nervous, but you know what? The courage overweighed the nervousness, and they said what they had to say, and that's all it takes. Get up, stand up, <laughs> you know? That's Not right. Sit down, lay down. <laughs> <laughs> Just say, Sharon, did you want to make some time for that? Yeah. it? <laughs> All right. Okay. Amen from Sharon over there. All right. Um, yeah, so we'll be going through a couple of more tonight. Uh, we also have some news that we'll be sharing throughout the evening as well. The next one coming up in this list of speakers for this evening is going to be Nathan Woodliffe Stanley. Uh, he is a, a core member on the leadership team for the Abolish Slavery National Network as well and uh, a former ACLU uh, chief officer, or I guess they call themselves uh, the director for the ACLU in Colorado, who was also involved in changing their state constitution. Man, every time I say something like that, I just got to get a little grim because that's not something you just do every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like if you were involved in changing a state constitution like Vermont or Colorado or wherever you may be, that's major. And it's a shame that the media has nothing to say about it whatsoever. Anyway, uh, he really uh, went in pretty deeply, and I love how he presents it. So let's go ahead and listen to him. Nathan Woodliffe Stanley, testimony in Vermont. For PR2 on 120.22, you're listening to Abolition Today. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Um, Today. Next up, we have Today. Nathan Woodliffe Stanley, and on deck will be Christine Longmore Hughes. So welcome, Nathan. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair and members of the committee. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, my name is Nathan Woodliffe Stanley, a member of the leadership team of the Abolish Slavery National Network, and I speak in favor of Proposal 2. I'm also a Unitarian Universalist minister, and I am the former executive director of the ACLU of Colorado. When I was in that position, we actively supported Amendment A 
to abolish slavery and involuntary servitude from the Colorado State Constitution by removing the exception that allowed slavery and involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime. That amendment was placed on the 2018 ballot by a unanimous bipartisan vote of the Colorado legislature, and it passed on election day by about a two to one margin. Now the Colorado constitution states, there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude, period. There is no longer an exception, including as punishment for crime. The exception clause that had been in the Colorado Constitution was, of course, similar to the exception clause in the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The exception clause was abused extensively, especially after Reconstruction, by practices such as convict leasing, which produced significant revenue for many states. It is still the case today that many incarcerated people are treated for all practical purposes as slaves of the state. We incarcerate more people in this nation than anywhere else in the world, and black Americans are disproportionately imprisoned. In the words of Michelle Alexander, it is the new Jim Crow. The process of responding to Amendment A in Colorado in legal, legislative, or administrative ways has been admittedly slow, but there should be no doubt that it was an essential first step to declare that whatever you think about criminal justice, no matter how we respond to crime, it should not even possibly be with slavery and involuntary servitude. People seeking to abolish constitutional slavery in other states contacted our organizer, Kamau Allen, who you've heard from, and we organized the Abolish Slavery National Network, supporting Nebraska and Utah in their successful abolition efforts in 2020. It would be especially meaningful for Vermont to make a firm statement against slavery and involuntary or indentured servitude in all circumstances, since, as I understand the history, Vermont was the first state to use exception clause language in a partial prohibition of slavery. It would be an important way to set right a historical wrong, to prevent future abuses, to set an example for our nation and the possibility of change at the federal level, and to start a discussion about addressing criminal justice today in more humane and constructive ways. Please vote yes on Proposal 2. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. 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 So that was Nathan Woodliff uh, Stanley basically putting the nail in the coffin on the testimony right there. And once again, I bear witness to the truth, Max. Yes, sir. Um, Mark? You know, something else going on over here, uh, Max. And yeah, you said, definitely bearing witness to the truth. I love some truth. But there's, there's another piece of this thing that folks who are listening, I, you know, I'd ask you to consider is, is these systems, what they're doing is, is they're, they're oppressing black and brown and poor people. And, and, and what's important to understand is despite the fact that, you know, yes, one in 14 black men are incarcerated in this state. We lead the nation. One in 14 black men are incarcerated in this state. And that, that's, that's a big deal. But there's something else that I don't want folks to miss because there is a, there's only one 1%. First of all, there's only one one percent. What we're talking about is political and economic power. We're talking about the system that was formed and the badges and incidents that continue to perpetuate this. But 
82% of our prisons here are somewhere between 80 to 85% of our prisons are white people in Vermont. And, and that, you know, Christine said collateral damage in the background, but it's damage nonetheless. And, you know, what, what, you, what you will see, what we have seen across the United States and what some of probably what we're seeing beginning to develop here is just that same old tired, um, you know, dog whistle politics uh, that you hear. Uh, about this, you know, this this whole idea of, you know, those people, and oh, you know, and 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 if if those people would just obey the law, but the truth is, is that this thing is hurting white people and at 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 larger uh, in larger numbers, it's hurting black people at disproportionate rates, but it's hurt black and brown folks, but it's hurting white people in larger numbers across the United States. This whole idea of this constitutionalized slavery. So so for my white brothers and sisters that are listening, you know, you can't listen to the dog whistle. You can't listen to the dog whistle. This thing is this this thing is much bigger than that. And you can't once again fall into this um this bait that's being pitched to us to where what we what we do is is we end up electing officials and they end up passing policies that at the end of the day hurt us more um, than if we were to just go down the, the proper path. Uh, and, and what I mean is, is that we got white brothers and sisters that are making policy decisions, they're making um, you know decisions on electing officials that end up hurting white people more just because they're listening to that dog whistle. So don't listen to that dog whistle. Uh, this, is about, this is about how black and brown and poor people are being impacted by this system. Yeah, it's very true that nowhere in that Constitution that neither you have or the federal or any other state has does it specify a race. Um, And it is also true that, at least in Vermont and other states like Vermont, the majority of your inmates are white people or people of European descent or non-black people, however you may want to address them. Probably a lot of natives. Probably a lot of natives, Sharon said, yeah. Uh, It's just the problem, though, slavery is wrong, period. It doesn't matter who it's happening to, it's wrong. And if you're railroaded because you're poor, uh, poor white, poor Spanish, poor whatever, that is wrong. Uh, So you're right, Right. it is happening to uh, white people or, uh, you know, I don't even want to really call them white people because you're not white. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't even want to call us black because we're not black. (laughs) That's the color code that was developed for us. You know who gets to decide whether you're black or not? The person that's about to lynch your ass. That's who gets to decide whether you're black or not. If you're black enough for the police to shoot at night thinking that you had a gun, then you're black. You know? Uh, We never chose those titles for ourselves. There was no colors until the late 1600s when it was brought in to justify the enslavement of Africans, the genocide and land theft of natives. That's when it was developed and created as a thing. Because race is really a social construct. It's an illusion. Amen. But the effect of race, racism, is very real, deadly real. When you take what you believe, like we see right now with people out there, whether it be wrong or right, and then you incorporate it into your daily life and it affects others directly, that's when it becomes very real. I'm not a Nazi, but that doesn't mean somebody can't think I'm one and shoot me for being one. Right. So, you know, yeah, yeah, that's what we had on that. So it's hard for me to even say white people, just people, 
<laughs> and it's okay for you to care about somebody who doesn't resemble you in color or maybe class or anything. It's okay for you to care. But in the bottom line of it all, the traditional targets have always been the same. Right. And, you know, Matt, this is the thing. I mean, we're we're required to care about everyone, you know, especially with our faith and everything. But so the thing about I think it is important to point the fact out that most white people are, I mean, most of the prisons have white people in them. And at the same time, also not forget to say, you know, to talk about what happens when somebody gets out of jail. Because when somebody Mm. white gets out of jail, you know, their chances are so much better of being able to recover from that. They stay on probation not as long and just on and on and on. Yeah, uh, they do have a lot of benefits just because of the color of their skin and because of the systemic racism that has been put into our institutions where people go in using that illusion uh, as something that they believe is a fact. You know, it's like, what do they call it? Uh, Beyonce has these, these, these followers called uh, the Beehive. If they came in at thinking that she was a literal god, you would have a problem with that, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it does have a major effect on us, particularly when we're talking about disenfranchisement in regards to things like voting. You're one of the few two states in the country that allow people to vote uh, without a caveat after they've been uh, served time for a felony or been charged with a felony. But other nation states aren't like that. Like uh, in Kentucky, 5.9% of Kentucky's population that is eligible to vote cannot vote due to a felony conviction. Uh, the disenfranchisement is worse for African Americans. 15% of black voting age Kentuckians are barred from the polls. Uh, and they ask, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because Kentucky's constitution says slavery and involuntary servitude in the state are forbidden except as a punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. Article 1, Section 25. Once you're made a slave of the state, you don't have the rights under the constitution, including the right to vote. But you do have to pay taxes, and taxation without representation uh, is theft, isn't it? <laughs> So nowhere in that amendment does it say you get your voting rights back, which is why you've got to jump through all kinds of loopholes and hoops and everything else to try to be able to vote in some of these states. That disenfranchisement uh, turns out to be about 6 to 10 million people who can't vote in real time, not who have all been robbed of their rights to vote over generations. But right now, right now, if we had an election, that's 6 to 10 million people that can't say nothing about it. Uh, I'll pass the mic over with that. You hit it out the park right there, Max. And, uh, you know, I'm loving the the next clip that you have when we see the effects that all of the testimonies had on the assembly, uh, particularly uh, Peter Anthony. So uh, I don't know if you want to get into that right now, if you want to keep the conversation going. All right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, but let me just make sure that, I, uh, Mark, was there anything that you want to add to that, you or Christine? What we no, said? I just wanted to add that, you know, just as, as a result of the work that we've been doing, you know, it's just all of this is so illuminating. It's It's been, a, you know, a great journey up until now because we've been talking about the impacts of systemic racism here across the state, and, and we've been doing a lot of work, policy work, 
and to get legislators to turn and to realize and understand. Uh, you know, we talk about badges and incidents. Christine was just talking a moment ago about outcomes when folks are coming out of prison and, and how, you know, that racist, how, how you can just tie that together. Um, I would just say that, you know, when you start talking about, you know, the fact that 25% of all black folks in this state, you know, are, are living in poverty, or you start thinking about, you know, the um, political and economic power and where it's seated, it's, it's, you, this gets you to understand that it's not by accident that this has been developed over generations. And it's really, really important work for that reason because we're able to draw that contiguous line that connects us across generations, across centuries. You know, it's not by accident when we walk through the state house and all of the pictures are white men. It's not by accident. It's because, you know, you know constitutions build, they, they build statutes, they build rules, they build institutions. And, you know, when you start looking at disparities across all of these uh, social determinants, when you look every single one, you look up on our website, we, we, we've got, you know, statistics that are broken out uh, where you're seeing these disparities consistently being produced. Uh, it justifies the work that we have to do in our health care system, uh, and with our housing, uh, with our education system. Uh, it, and it also, I think, it, you know, it provides us, you know, the data that we need to better understand how we got to where we are so we can move forward. So this is really important work. Uh, and, um, you know, so it's understanding, you know, the, the, the realities of, you know, not just the exception clause, but slavery itself and the disparities that it, it created in, in political and economic power over centuries is incredibly important in doing the work of eradicating systemic racism in our state. Amen, brother. Uh, that's definitely mm-hmm. some real talk right there. Uh, I'm going to uh, bear witness to the truth. <laughs> that's right. Um, after we testified there, it really got some minds buzzing. It also created a couple of haters. As you know, it went 11-1-0, meaning one abstained, one voted no, and uh, oh, 10 one zero, and 10 voted yes. Uh, so in the beginning, on um, one correction on that, Max. It's, it's an it's an eleven person committee, so you got you got a ten a ten one rather. Okay, it's, it's only eleven people. Committee. Okay, well we got ten and one. And one person said, you know, I don't care how long it takes to make this change, I don't want to do it now. <laughs> you know, uh, but, yeah. Well, anyway. In the beginning, there were some haters. They had one who was complaining about people calling in from out of state uh, and got upset about that. Have we ever done that before? It was a public hearing. I mean, they've had people call in on public hearings uh, from out of state before. Then she also wanted to control what people talked about. She got upset saying people were going off track about things, but they weren't. You just don't understand the full idea of what we're, de- we're, we're addressing here. This is not just mm-hmm. some superficial um, symbolic gesture you're making. It means something real. You literally have peonage legal in your state. You, you have slavery legal in your state. That means something in a nation that uses loopholes as a science. Um, so that happened, and then after they were done uh, hating on us, the rest of the committee was like, yes, this is very important. Yes, I learned a lot. And one of the ones that stood out for me was Representative Peter Anthony. Uh, his remarks I thought was worth repeating here, very powerful. So this is Representative Peter Anthony, his testimony in Vermont on PR2, 
and it'll be followed by the Blind Boys of Alabama with Amazing Grace. You're listening <laughs> to Max Parkers and Yusuf San here on Abolition Today. <laughs> Our guest today is Mark and Christine Hughes. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Representative Anthony. Thank you, Madam Chair. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, like Rep. Gannon, I, I'm not sure uh, how one could or should steer, if you will, public reaction to a proposal. Um, I, this won't be the first hearing that I have attended, listened to, where uh, some of the testimony goes way off point. Uh, I'm not sure that you can uh, uh, control that, frankly. You just have to uh, sort of filter it. <clears throat> I do want to put in a plug, however, for some of the things I heard, which I am surprised I did not hear from any of the um, uh, historian types that we took testimony from. I'm referring to the assertion, and I'll call it an assertion, uh, that I never heard until uh, very recently that while Vermont's inclusion of the exceptions, so to say, may have been uh, focused on an accommodation for the widespread uh, practice supporting emigration from the old country uh, in the form of indentured servitude. But I, I had heard not any discussion by historians, specifically of Vermont history, uh, casting a wider lens and suggesting, as was suggested last night, that our inclusion of that exception was a path-breaking and many replicated opening to some mischief in other states using that exception. And frankly, I was unaware of that. I did not know that it was so frequently repeated literally throughout the 19th century and uh, exported, if you will, even into um, uh, governments outside of the United States and North America. So that was a light bulb on for me uh, that I will now pay attention to. So I, I frankly thank the testimony for drawing that um, piece of information to my attention, since no Vermont historians, uh, despite the fact that we like to say, think that we're first in many things, that didn't happen ever to say, by the way, you're the first in creating an exception that was much abused around the United States during the entire 19th century. Interesting piece of information. Thank you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that
that is a bounty on people's heads. For every single person that comes in there, it's another five hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Fifteen hundred dollars a day. Fifteen hundred a day. Yep, brother Mark. Come on, preacher. Reverend Hughes. Reverend Hughes. <laughs> hey, Amen. You know, um, I, what I was going to get after there with, and, and I think I appreciate the the lob because Max, Max will throw one up for you. You know, if you're in the end zone and you just so happen to catch it, you get <laughs> um, Yeah. But, um, you know, th- there is um, there's so much, you know, that goes into, you know, because there, there are those of us who fight for justice uh, on a daily basis. You know, we fight for those things that are right, you know. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the Lord is, has uh, placed it on my heart to really just continue to fight, just to, to, to walk and, and just to show up for the battle every single day. Because when you know that you're on the right side of something, I think what that does, at least for me, is that that, that encourages me. It gives me strength. Uh, it, gives, it gives me hope. Um, and I, I really believe that, you know, the work of organizations like the Abolish Slavery National Network, they have had favor uh, from the Most High God as a result of the position uh, that, 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 they've been, that they've been operating from. And sometimes it's all about being in position. And I really believe, you know, just looking at the phenomenal growth of the Abolish Slavery National Network and just the breakneck speed at which, uh, we have been able to move forward and to be able to bring these policies forward across all of these states and even at the federal level. You know, mm-hmm. The only question that many people are asking is, is, what took so long? But if we can get past that and just really focus on the fact that we are doing good work, that this, this is about justice, this is about righteousness, this, this is about those things that are good, those things that are pure, you know, this is, this is, not, this is not some kind of, you know, half-baked strategy to do something that most people don't even understand. This is, this is about the, uh, the soul of a nation. This is a, this is, so this is real work, and it's something that's long overdue, but I think God has his hand on it. So, Max, you started preaching. You threw the ball into the end zone. Um, I'm grabbing it, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and spike it right here um, because God is good and, and his mercy endures forever. I, I believe that the work that we're doing, it, that it has favor, that it has an anointing on it. And the gates of hell could stand against it, but they won't prevail because this thing is moving forward. So that's what this is about. This is, this is about us doing the right thing as a nation. For once, for once as a nation, can we ever say that we can be a nation that, that stands unanimously against something as basic and fundamental and disgusting and deplorable as slavery. Amen? Amen. Amen. Back to you. Amen. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to carry it a little further. Get this little touchdown going on over here, even though I don't know nothing about sports. <laughs> but it sounds like the right thing to say. Um, Luke 4.18, right? If you want to be Christ-like, and do the work that he was doing, then repeat after me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Uh-huh. So if you want to be Christ-like, that's oh. your marching. I see 
what you did there. Come on, preacher. I think you just hijacked my sermon. <laughs> Don't make me come to Sumter. <laughs> I'm going to have to make you come to Sumter then. If you get you here, come on down. This is the Praise is Right, baby. Come on now. <laughs> and, and it's something about that. It's something about that, too, because you, cause we're talking about captives, but we're also talking about the poor. Mm-hmm. And there's probably over 2,200 scriptures in the Bible that speak about the poor. See, this, this system that was created, it was created to, to, crea- it was, it was created to generate massive and pornographic levels of wealth. And at the yep. same time, to create just disgusting levels of poverty. And now, we, I'm not going to have a capitalism conversation with you today, but what all I'm really saying, though, <laughs> is that there are so many scriptures throughout the Bible that, that charge us with a responsibility to care for the poor. So many scriptures throughout the Bible that, that charges with the responsibility to see about those who are locked up, see about folks who are in nursing homes and in hospitals and so forth. This is our reasonable service. It's our reasonable service. This is, so when we get up every day and we do this work for those who are watching, for those who are listening, for those who are going to go into your breakout groups later, you know, I applaud you. I applaud the work that y'all are doing because, because this is God-appointed work. He has, he has called us. Like, like Brother just said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This, this, is, this is all about what God has. This is the best that God has for us to enable us to be the best us that we possibly can as a nation, as a state, as a people, as a society, because we've never been that. I ain't done yet, but I'll pass it over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, brother. Yeah, right. Thank you. We've thank you for it. that. Thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, there's no coincidence that the antebellum abolitionists also felt like it was what they were doing was God's work um, because it was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. freedom versus slavery. You don't think God hates slavery? Come on, man. I, I just read to you what Jesus himself said his mission was. Right. And if you're going to be like him, then your mission is the same mission. Right. Right. So and yeah, at the man. same time he was reading that, he was he was standing in a synagogue, he was standing in a in a, in a church um that was under Roman occupation. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> that, that, that whole that whole society was under occupation. So what he what he was doing was they they they, they, they might have thought he came for one thing, but he was talking about something else. But you know, I think one of the you know, and I'll leave it here. Is is what you know? What what really brings me satisfaction, um, and where I really feel gratified in the work that we're doing, is the righteousness of the work that we're doing. Um, because there, you know, there there is a certain amount of joy that comes to me in knowing that there's brothers and sisters, and some many even unsuspected, across this nation that are just saying enough. They're just saying enough, and you can call it, you know. The you know the um, amendment A or you can call it PR two or make up some other letters and numbers and all that other stuff that you want all across the United States. But what we're doing um, for those who might be a little confused is is we're standing on the side of uh, the side of right. We're standing on the side of righteousness 
Uh, this mm-hmm. this is what the Lord would have for us uh, as a nation. You know, we, it's enough being hypocritical as a nation and, you know, trying to call out other nations for their so-called human rights violations and all this other nonsense when we've never really quite gotten it together ourselves uh, as a nation. This is a good, this is a great opportunity. And, yeah, there's a lot of people that are running scared, um, they're, and they're saying, oh, my God, what is this going to produce? What is this going to do? Come on, sit down. So this is, this, is not, this is not about a time of, you know, this is not a time for fear, and this is not a time for doubt. This is a time for courage. Um, this, this is a time for intestinal fortitude for us to, set, to step up, to stand up, and do the right thing uh, for those of us who are the least amongst us. Amen? Amen. Amen, Amen. to that, brother. And I hope. You know, um, there are so many ways that this is all connected. In Vermont, you have peonage in your constitution. So if you don't pay your bills, you can become a slave, uh, according to your state constitution. Uh, But that same exception clause of duly convicted is in all those 25 states as well as the federal. Uh, And duly convicted means you've been convicted in the court of law by your peers of the crime they accuse you of. Now, what kind of crimes are we talking about? Um, as I just mentioned, peonage would be one, not being able to afford a bill. And I want to use an example with a news article that just recently came out about Alabama. Uh, there's this town in Alabama called Brookside. Uh, it's in Jefferson County. And they had a new mayor came in a few years ago. And when he came in, uh, they were getting like 600000 or something like that dollars from budgets uh, regarding fines and fees. They only had about 1,200 people in the freaking town. Once, after he came in, he brought it up to $1.2 million. Every man, woman, and child in that town was paying an average of $487 in 2020 in fines and forfeitures. For every man, woman, and child. Now, you're using this extortion scheme under the cover of law to bleed people dry, and it costs the $487 per man, woman, and child in a small town. Imagine what yeah. it's like in the big towns. And if you don't pay that, guess what happens to you? I used to live in Eastover, South Carolina, a little town uh, with only a few thousand people in it. Average income was like eleven grand. The courthouse looked like a fish shack. And every Thursday, it would be filled with black people. And guess what they were doing? paying their fines and their fees, or they would end up in jail. And that's what's happening in Alabama. Pass the mic over to you, Mark, since you're our guest. That's, uh, you, you know, that, that's really, you know, that's kind of the point, you know. It's, and if you, I mean, you, you wouldn't really need to go much further than Ferguson and see what came out of that, that you know, that situation there as far as the, when the feds came in and started looking around and you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And who's in line? Black and brown and poor people. Uh, that's who's in line. The folks they're 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 standing in line and with in the I guess it's Title 13 here. It says if you don't if you don't pay your bills. Now this is where it comes together. Watch this. So we talked about the Constitution. Now I'm in the statute. Okay. In Title 13 here, it says if you don't pay your bills, you go to jail. That they can they can actually come and get you. So it's it's. It's uh, it, for those who want to look it up. It's uh, Title 13, um, Chapter 223, uh, in the section is 7172. 
it, 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 it says you go to jail if you don't pay your bills. So this is real. Now, now and I, I want to just emphasize something else because I know I have a lot of people, uh, I got a lot of haters, but you know what? That's, that's what, that's part of the territory. Jesus had a lot of haters. I think the thing is, is that you, you, when you start talking about slavery, I mean, this is where things are also very, very different in Vermont. There are two certain connotations that you have to keep in mind um, when we start talking about the state-sponsored prison slavery for, uh, um, specifically. Um, one is, um, is the whole idea of the, um, the outcomes in terms of, you know, what that does, you know, what the, how it connects to these other systems and, and what position that places black and brown and poor people, this whole, this whole system. And, and that really goes back into these badges and incidents in the systemic racism. The other piece, the other piece is conditions. Um, now, what I mean by that is, is I'm talking about the conditions under which folks live as slaves. How do you feed folks? How do you treat folks? Well, at the end of the day, we're, talk, we're talking about, you know, what would Jesus do? How do you, so I'm going to say it again, how do you treat folks? Um, how do you clothe them? How do you house them? You know, whether or not you're selling their labor, whether or not they're, they're, they are getting fair, fair, fair labor. There are, there are so many implications that go into this thing called slavery. Now, here's the unique aspect of Vermont. Even the 13th Amendment says, and it ain't right, it says for the, for the punishment of a duly convicted crime. Uh, so watch this. In, in Vermont, it's very important to understand that we don't have local jails. So there is no place where folks can be held pending their due conviction. Did you see what I just did there? What I'm mm-hmm. telling you is, is that when, if you are suspected of committing a crime and, watch this, you can't pay your bail because you can't afford it because you're poor, you black and brown are poor, okay, then here in Vermont you go to prison, my friend. And you are living under the same conditions as anybody else who is duly convicted, inter, intermingled. Now, I'm not saying right. duly convicted slavery is a, is a good thing and, and that we ought to be happy about that. But what I'm saying is, is you don't even have to be a duly convicted person here in Vermont to be a slave because you are living under the same conditions in our prison here in Vermont because there are no local jails. Hey, Mark, the horrible thing is it's just like the 1800s where they would ship you up river to the south. So it's not that, like they just go anywhere. Where are they going, Mark? Where are they sending these people who have yet to be duly convicted? Oh, we got a network of prisons here. What is there, about six prisons across the state, five or six prisons that. across the state? Christine said more than that. So the ones that are out of state. Oh, you mean, oh, you mean our other little secret. Um, yes. So, mm-hmm. so we, so we also now you want to get now you want to get deep. I, I see where you're going. He said go deep. We we got to so, bear witness to the truth. Bear witness to the truth. So so yes, we do <laughs> we we do send. Um, I I think there's upwards of maybe 250 plus folks who have been moved across state lines down into Mississippi. And and note that is a private prison. In Mississippi, where they're sending folks down there, a private prison in Mississippi, private, private in the deep prison. dark south. 
Don't you mess up in Vermont because we'll ship your ass down to Mississippi and you know Mississippi will get you. Well, how do you get to see your lawyer? How do you get to see your family or anybody? But your lawyer is critical. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to get a Mississippi lawyer. Oh, no. <laughs> and see, this is why throughout the history, as we you know, covered last week when we went through the courts of how the 13th Amendment was dealt with in the courts, the courts have always said Congress has the authority to adopt appropriate legislation to fix this. And this is what's led to a uh, PR2 being before the Virginia legislature, uh, Vermont legislature, uh, ACA3 out in California. Uh, what is it in New Jersey? H8, I forgot what it's called in New Jersey, but all over the, all over the country we have these proposals before Congress because we're trying the state congresses to get them to adopt the appropriate legislation and in the, and in our case adopting the appropriate legislation is removing the exception clause that allows slavery and this will create the pathway for the courts to do something about it because they've told us this over and over and over again that they're prohibited from doing anything because the 13th Amendment only gives uh, Congress the authority to address that issue. The right, right side, the Republican. You want to say in, something, in Mark? Too, Max, uh, sorry about that, Max and Stephanie. Go ahead. No, go ahead, brother. You guess. I was going to say, uh, well, I ought to be guest more often. I get to talk. Um, that's good. <laughs> now, now, I was going to say is, is that. You know, we we don't really, I don't think there's any of us, just to be clear for those who are listening, is this, mm-hmm. I know that there's, there are none of us who are on this call that have the ability to project exactly where this takes us. Uh, as we, we know what, we're, what we'd like to see is we'd like to, we'd like to live in a nation where there, there's no such thing as slavery, period. Right. Um, but as right. far as you know, the work that's happening across these states and also at the at the national level, um, we nobody has a Ouija board, nobody has a crystal ball here, and we don't we you know it's just impossible to tell where this where this will take us. Um, you know, it's kind of it's unlike where you know the direction this thing was going when they when they planned it because they knew exactly where this thing was going. If you know what I mean. All we're trying to do is we're trying to undo something. Just as Brother Max said a minute ago, it's going to take a long time for this thing to unfold as we see this thing play out. So I think it is a matter of, you know, courage where we have to step into this thing. But we also have to trust that if we do the right thing, that it will lead us to good things. And and our hope is we'll, we'll continue that fight. But, you know, we're not... You know, I don't think anybody on this call is suggesting that, you know, next year or even 20 years from now that there be no prison system or anything like that because I know a few yeah. people who probably need to be in prison. But the point it's I'm making right. is, is just that there are, some th- there are some things that we need to unpack here, um, and we cannot be apprehensive about this work just because of the uncertainty that exists in where it's taken us. Go ahead, Max. Mm, very I'm well with said. you on that, bro. I'm with you on that. The the right wing pundits and conservatives would have us believe 
that Black Lives Matter, uh, the uh, anti-fascist Antifa, and all those, just all criminals. They would have you believe that if you made it into a jail or a prison, you must have done something horrendous to have been there because cops just don't pick up nobody for no reason. And courts just don't prosecute you for no reason. And you're not in prison for no reason. So they have this belief and they demonize us when the truth is there have been more arrests for personal possession of marijuana than for all violent crimes combined. Uh, that here in South Carolina, I believe it's like one in eight black men are in jail for failure to pay child support. Failure to pay freaking child support, which is that peonage we was talking about a little bit earlier that funnels you into the prison. Even the uh, way that they have marijuana now across the country where some states are legal, states' rights issues, some states it's not legal, like here in South Carolina, they can still put you in prison for that. Violation of probation is a huge driver of uh, the incarceration rates. And for the first mm-hmm. time in a decade now, our federal prison population has increased under Joe Biden. I don't expect to be surprised, but there's this article that came out from the slate.com, and I want to read just some of it for you. And they said, just last week in his address to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Biden again made his position very clear when he told his audience, we shouldn't be cutting funding for police departments. I propose increasing funding. Reflecting this calculated political stance, in addition to earmarking $651 million in his 2022 budget to boost local police hiring. The Biden administration has repeatedly encouraged state and local governments to use the $350 billion in discretionary funds given to them by the American Rescue Plan to expand police budgets. <laughs> wow. That, that, the, the rescue what? money, expand police budgets. Indeed, both Biden and his spokespeople have proudly touted the, his signature COVID relief bill as a major stimulus for policing in a national context already characterized by globally unparalleled police spending. Given Biden's long career of misleading conflations of punishment with public safety, his campaign promises to cut the federal prison population by over half. We're encouraging. Unfortunately, they so far proved to be hollow. During his administration, the federal prison population has grown for the first time in a decade, reversing the marginal gains made under President Donald Trump. So, too, has the number of people held in immigration and customs enforcement detention, which has increased by 70% since Biden took office. That's current news. You know, so you're just making this thing grow bigger and bigger and bigger and feeding the beast to the tune of $556,000 a year to incarcerate a single black man in a jail on Rikers Island, which is a known hellhole. Pass the mic. How do you follow that? <laughs> it's politics. It's politics. They do it all the time. It's, that, it's more back to that dog whistle that I was telling you about. Because that's he's, he, you know, there's a, there's a certain part of his base that he's he's got to keep ignited on that issue. You don't got to be Republican or Democrat, to, you know, to sell them dog whistles. And it say, hey, you know, uh, law and order, public safety. You know, the, that that's the whole point. You know, you you saw Clinton do it. it, it it's not just, this is not just a Republican thing. 
This, right. this is a, um, you know, a this is a political thing. thing. It's an yeah, enslaver so, thing. But yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's one of them things where you you know you gotta you gotta make sure and of course it's a pendulum that's swinging and it's complicated because yes uh, there there was a, a pushback on this whole conversation about so-called public safety that was going on especially you know in June of of 2020 uh, during uh, Brother Floyd's uh, assassination. And there was a, mm-hmm. there was a huge pushback across the country. We know that. We also know uh, that you know that, that right now, you know, we've got a as the pendulum swings, we we've got we do have some issues across some of these major cities where violence is on the uptick. You got that going on at the same time. You got to ask yourself murder, sometimes. Murder going on. People say. You got to ask your time. Murder. People say, well, we got to make sure that we're safe. You know, you got in. You know, right. I started asking the question, well, who's safe? You know, what is public safety? You know, who's, you know, who are we listening to when you say, well, when somebody says, I don't feel safe? And moreover, you know, who are you policing? Where are you policing? When are you policing? How are you policing? What crimes are you, are you determining are to, be, to be the high-priority crimes, uh, crimes that you are policing? There's a lot... You know, you can look at numbers, you know, this, quanti- this quantitative data and sit back and say, oh, yeah, this, that, and the third. But at the end of the day, you know, we got to look at the historical precedence that's been set on how people mm-hmm. have been incarcerated and, and what laws have been used against them and what communities have been policed. You know, you talk about this whole thing about cannabis. I, like we, I guess we like to call it cannabis now since it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here, here in Vermont, we're rolling out a, a full taxation and regulation industry, wherein we know that for decades we sent brothers and sisters to prison, you know, like, you know, you know, coming and going for the, for the same thing. Where it used to be, Jamal was selling it coming up Route Seven, and now James got, you know, he's he's set up right down here in Burlington, and and they're, you know, and, and they're they're profiting from it. So there's it's a it's a big conversation. But um, you know, Biden ain't doing nothing. Ain't no case, you know, that any other president hasn't done, and he's doing it um, for to get his political points in the places where he he needs to get it. And so he, you know, he's not necessarily the bad guy on this one. Hey, brother Mark, um, we are coming up on almost the end of the program, so I want to give you an opportunity. First, let me say thank you for you and Christine being here tonight to mm-hmm. share with us uh, this period and listen to these powerful testimonies and make our remarks about the circumstance. So thank you very much for that. Uh, also, Thanks. shout out to Tribal Maine. We've been sending a message throughout the whole show about how, how, how really good everything was. She loved the music and all of that. Um, but thank you for that. And now I want to give you an opportunity uh, to tell people where they can go to help the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance and yourself in your efforts to end constitutional slavery in that state. I appreciate, you, I, I appreciate you and I appreciate you yourself and, and I first of all I, I would be remiss if I didn't give uh yourself like a huge shout out. I wasn't on the mm. program I wasn't watching the program last week but yourself gave us a little personal uh a little tutorial and I think we got we got some, some goodies uh just on on just uh, how he laid this whole thing out, you know, with the with the laws and the precedent and, and the courts, and I was just dizzy after I got finished listening to it. I, 
<laughs> but I, 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 well, I'm gonna have to come back and get some more, bro. But I'm just saying, I was. Thank you. I, I appreciate like, wow. that. Wow, you are, you are full of wisdom and knowledge. So I, I so much appreciate that, Max. Your leadership is just phenomenal. Uh, we love you. We, you know, Christine and I, we seldom get an opportunity to, to be on a call with with our brothers and sisters across the, the country. But we always look forward to being on with y'all. It's almost as good as church. Oh, come on. <laughs> mm. With two or more gathered in my name, there I am. Yeah, we, so we love you. We love you both. And, we, and for those of you who are listening, all of the supporters, all of the folks who are out there doing the hard work across the state, you know, we want to shout out to y'all. We want to support y'all. VTRacialJusticeAlliance.org. VTRacialJusticeAlliance.org. That's Victor Tango. VTRacialJusticeAlliance.org. You can find us, just follow the breadcrumbs over on Twitter. You'll see us over on Twitter. Um, I think it's uh, called uh, at Vermont Allies. Uh, we're, um, we're on Facebook, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. Uh, we're also uh, over on um, Instagram as well. You might even get a TikTok account, you know, just so we can, so I can do some dancing. But I want to, um, you know, just, again, <laughs> just let y'all know I appreciate you. I appreciate the work. PR2 is going to the full house. Um, you know that that's uh you know you know it's it's good to you know take a look at our blog we'll we'll be posting doing some posting up if you want to get on our mailing list just go ahead and jump out there on vtracialjusticealliance.org follow the breadcrumbs the contact uh, we'll reach out to you you want to reach me directly I'm at mark at vtracialjusticealliance.org or we also have an info account there's more eyes on that I would encourage you if you want immediate response send a note over to info at vtracialjusticealliance.org, but maybe one of our, our staff will get back to you a lot more quickly. Um, it is a journey that we're taking here in Vermont. Um, we have a full house vote, as I said, which is the second of two full house votes. And it is done with it. It's all done. So what's going to happen after that is we'll be doing the get out the vote, and we'll be doing a lot of outreach and education. I'm looking forward to meeting some other folks across the United States uh, reach out to us, please. We want to hear from you, uh, from you. God is good and his mercy endures forever. Mm-hmm. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It's our duty to win. We must love and care for one another. We've got nothing to lose but our chance. But our chance. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. All right. Um, that has been a powerful program. Of course, there was some preaching in it. How could you not, after hearing those, the words, the testimonies, uh, you know, there is definitely the hand of divine has been involved in this fight the whole time. There are things that had to happen. There are stars that had to align for something like this to occur, but we're here now, and we've got to finish the job that our ancestors began. And if you think you don't owe them nothing, you might need to think again, because we owe them everything. It's the reason Amen. we're here now. For sure, for so sure. Let's finish this work while we still have breath in our bodies. All right, uh, I want to thank uh, our guests uh, as well as my brother, co-host Yusuf Hassan, and our listeners and supporters, both here in the United States and abroad. Uh, we can't do this without you because abolition is a reason for a revolution. You know what I'm saying? And the revolution right. begins in your mind. All right, Brother Yusuf, you want to uh, give a shout-out to our sponsors, and then we'll get into our final segment. Don't leave yet. We still got the hotness left. We'll get into our final segment, which is our Bridging the Gap segment. 
Yes, so we want to give a special thanks to our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sema Urge, that's Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash abolition today. Uh, that's where you'll find all the news, information, and music you'll hear on the program. Uh, we're also available on all major podcast platforms. And remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become part of the solution. You can also text end the exception, make it all one word, no spaces, E-N-D-T-H-E-E-X-C-E-P-T-I-O-N to 52886 and follow the prompts. This will send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. Our Bridging the Gap this evening is very dynamic. Once again, we'll have Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass, The Liberation of the Liberator. This, this is really a powerful segment from Frederick Douglass, and that's going to be followed by uh, Speak, and it's called, it's, uh, called Bethany Music with Casey Paulin on the lead vocals. So we'll be back next week, February 6th, with another master class on slavery abolition. We'll be joined by a special guest. That's uh, Christopher Davis. Does he go by Christopher or Chris? Curtis Davis. Curtis Davis. I'm sorry. Curtis Davis, founder of Decarcerate Louisiana, and a whole bunch of other things he's involved in. We'll save that for when he's on the program next week. You definitely want to tune in for that. You definitely want to tune in all the time because, as you see, we always bring it. We bear witness to the truth every single week. So until next week. Think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. I had been living four or five months in New Bedford when there came a young man to me with a copy of The Liberator, the paper edited by William Lloyd Garrison, and asked me to subscribe to it. I told him I had just escaped from slavery and, and was, of course, very poor and had no money then to pay for it. He was very willing to take me as a subscriber notwithstanding and I read the paper from week to week. It soon took a place in my heart, second only to the Bible. It detested slavery and made no truce with traffickers in the bodies and souls of men. It preached human brotherhood, it denounced oppression, and with all the solemnity of, thus saith the Lord, demanded the complete emancipation of my race. The paper became my meat and my drink. My soul was set on fire. It's sympathy for my brethren in bonds. It's scathing denunciations of slaveholders. And it's powerful attacks upon the upholders of the institution sent a thrill of joy through my soul, such as I had never felt before. All the anti-slavery meetings held in New Bedford, I promptly attended, my heart bounding at every true utterance against the slave system and every rebuke of its friends and supporters. In the summer of 1841, a grand Anti-slavery convention was held in Nantucket under the auspices of Mr. Garrison and his friends. I determined on attending the meeting, though I had no thought of taking any part in any of its proceedings. But once there, I felt strongly moved to speak. And though I trembled in every limb, I spoke a few moments, describing my life as a slave. 
At the close of this great meeting, I was approached by Mr. John A. Collins, then the general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and urged to become an agent of that society and publicly advocate its principles. I was reluctant to accept the position. I had not been quite three years from slavery and was honestly distrustful of my ability. Besides, publicity might discover me to my master. But Mr. Collins was not to be refused, and I finally consented to go out for three months. I traveled in the company of white abolitionists and lectured to large meetings. Many came, uh, no doubt from curiosity, to hear what a Negro could say in his own cause. I was generally introduced as a chattel, a thing, a piece of Southern property, the chairman assuring the audience that it could speak. As a fugitive slave lecturer, I faced many hostilities. My treatment in the use of public conveyances was extremely rough. On the railroads, there was a mean, dirty, and uncomfortable car set apart for Negro travelers called the Jim Crow car. Regarding this as the fruit of slaveholding prejudice and being determined to fight the spirit of slavery wherever I might find it, I resolved to avoid this car, though it sometimes required some courage to do so. I sometimes was soundly beaten by conductors and brakemen. At several of our meetings, my fellow abolitionists and I were mobbed, and several of us had our good clothes spoiled by evil-smelling eggs. On one occasion, we had barely begun to speak when a mob of about 60 of the roughest characters I had ever looked upon ordered us through its leader to be silent, threatening us if we were not with violence. We attempted to dissuade them, but they had not come to parley, but to fight, and were well armed. They tore down the platform on which we stood and assaulted us. Undertaking to fight my way through the crowd with a stick which I caught up in the melee, I attracted the fury of the mob which laid me prostrate on the ground under a torrent of blows, leaving me thus with my right hand broken and in a state of unconsciousness, the mobocrats hastily mounted their horses and rode off. I was soon raised up and nursed and bandaged. But as the bones broken were not properly set, my hand has never recovered its natural strength and dexterity. During the first three or four months of my work as an anti-slavery agent, my speeches were almost exclusively made up of narrations of my own personal experience as a slave. Let us have the facts, said the people. But I was now reading and thinking. New views of the subject were being presented to my mind. It did not entirely satisfy me to narrate wrongs. I felt like denouncing them. I could not always curb my moral indignation for the perpetrators of slave-holding villainy long enough for a circumstantial statement of the facts, which I felt almost sure everybody know. People won't believe you ever were a slave, Frederick, if you keep on this way, my friends told me. It is not best that you seem too learned. These friends were not altogether wrong in their advice. And still I must speak just the word that seemed to me to be the word to be spoken by me. At last, the apprehended trouble came. People doubted if I had ever been a slave. They said I did not talk like a slave, look like a slave, or act like a slave, and that they believed I had never been south of Mason and Dixon's line. I decided to write out the leading facts connected with my experience in slavery, giving names of persons, places, and dates, thus putting it in the power of any who doubted to ascertain the truth or falsehood of my story. This book, entitled 
Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, was published in Boston in 1845. William Lloyd Garrison wrote the preface to my book. I want to hear you Louder than the noise I want to feel you Closer than the air I breathe Deep within my soul
Abolition today. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.